Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello? Be quiet in there. I can't hear a thing. I said hello. Is anybody there? Pig. You bitch pig. You cunt. Let me lick it. Let me lick it. Let me lick that pretty piggy cunt. Can I get more calls like this, Troy? Because honestly, <laughs> you're just making me feel so good about myself. <laughs> That's the goal. I mean, that is the goal. Nowadays, I would be flattered if I got a call like that. <laughs> just talk about how pretty my pink cunt is. I'd be like, "Who is this? Tell me so I can I can meet up with you." <laughs> what, it's one of your many social media. Oh, advisors, I bet. god mm-hmm. damn! Yeah, I've heard the stories. <laughs> All three of them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, God, Troy. The the holidays are, in, are, here. are here. They're in the air. They're just around the fucking corner. And I feel like this year, I don't know if it's just me, but I think since people are really finally coming out of COVID, people seem to be going like extra hard with the holidays. You notice that? Like, I am seeing decor out the wazoo here in Asbury Park, New Jersey. What about you, where you are? You know, I wish I could say the same. Um, I was actually, I took my dogs out uh, a few minutes ago and I was walking through the neighborhood and I was struck by how few houses actually have Christmas decor. There is, yeah, there's just a lack of it. I don't, I don't know what the deal is, but uh, maybe here in Vegas, the sentiment is a little bit different because, you know, Vegas is a different type of city. It's it's constant. It's constantly going. It's constantly going. So uh, I feel like Vegas never really slowed down to the halt to the extent of some of the other areas of the country. So uh, maybe they're just like, fuck it. We've, we're just going with the flow. I mean, but, it, you know, I, I haven't been down to the strip. My dad, my dad's coming in on Monday, so he'll be here for two weeks. So I will take him down there. I know there's supposed to be some great displays like at Resorts World and, and all that fun stuff so where we stayed back in April. But um, yeah, but the holidays, the holidays, I feel like are a very joyous, exciting time for horror fans, especially, especially these last couple of years, because I really feel Roger. And I think we we're going to have a discussion about this on our Patreon hint, hint. And I do want to plug our Patreon because we haven't done that for a while. But let me finish my thought. Um, I feel like these last couple of years, holiday horror has really, really gained popularity. And I feel like filmmakers now, especially indie filmmakers and uh, that I'm seeing, realize like how lucrative a holiday horror film can be if it's done right. I mean, there are many holiday horror films that, that, that basically disappear into obscurity, but it is really cool. I've done a holiday horror film myself, Mrs. Claus, as, as you guys are well aware. And it is so just... Uh, I can't even describe the word to see that film like people, strangers that I don't even know, post about it every December that they're watching it. And that, that, you know, it's it's one of those things that I think people are starting to realize, you know, if you do a holiday horror film and you do it right, it can be pretty, 
pretty lucrative, pretty, the, the reward you can get from it can be pretty great, especially as an indie filmmaker. Oh yeah. Um, I will say Mrs. Claus is by far the film that I think I am known for. Not that I'm like, fame, you know, I'm not trying to toot my horn to that extent to say, oh, I'm, but I'm just saying like Mrs. Claus is definitely the biggest of my three films. Um, and I do think that having the holiday aspect to it helped. I've got the same exact thing with Mother Krampus too. And it's not even that it's like a great movie. I'm not going to say any of my movies are. It's not a good movie. It's a very cheap, low budget fare, but it's fun. And I will say it's, it's shocking to me how like the holidays come about and the uptick, like in overall just attention I get, like from my IMDb kind of skyrocketing for a few weeks to me, you know, seeing when I search like Mother Krampus on, uh, Twitter, the volume of, of posts that come up about it. And it's not always positive, but there are always, I'll say this, there are always multiple viewers who very much enjoy what I did in that film. And I, I love, I do love seeing that. So I have a really warm uh, feeling towards that film specifically and towards holiday horror in general, because you and I have both had experiences that kind of, I would say elevated our, our, I don't want to say careers, but our passion for film, it definitely added fuel to the fire. We saw some success and it's really because we were inspired by films like the one we're going to talk about today. Yes. And I'm glad you, yeah, I'm glad you went there right now because I want to save a lot of the conversation about holiday horror for our Patreon, which I'm going to plug because we haven't done it for a while. It's the holidays, guys. You know, if you want to, if you enjoy listening to the show and you want to do a little Christmas, uh, spread a little Christmas joy to Roger and I and the podcast, there are two ways we're going to have you do this. We're going to ask of you, right? The first, if you're feeling mighty charitable, and Mighty Giving, you can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. The link will be in the show notes. We literally just posted our 18th full-length review. We did Friday the 13th, the original Friday the 13th. We have 18 full-length episodes. And these are these episodes, guys, Roger will attest to this. These are not skimpy episodes. Some of them are two hours, two-plus hours. Um, on top of that, we do have like another like um, 20 bonus mini episodes, just various topics. We do a lot of top threes, like we just did our top three characters who should have survived. Uh, and literally for pittance, a pittance amount, you can get access to all of this content. So check it out. Otherwise, if you want to spread some cheer, Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and write a review. We haven't had one in a while, Roger, so... Spread some Christmas. Oh, I know it. we do. It makes it makes us exciting, excited. You don't even know how excited we get when we see a new five star review or rating on a podcast. So, oh, he's he calls me immediately and he's like, "Guess what? We got a fucking." I'm obsessive. <laughs> I check it every day, and it's been a long time. So, one of you kind yeah. listeners, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, click that little five star, write a little nice rating. That'll be your Christmas gift to us. But we are giving you this Christmas gift that I'm so fucking excited about. Uh, our 87th episode, it took 87 episodes for us to get to this film, which is my favorite horror film of all time. I have not shied away from making that obvious. I have a Black Christmas tattoo. I'm probably one of the only few people in the entire world, I would imagine, that has a Black Christmas tattoo, but I do because I fucking adore this movie. And Roger, oh, I cannot wait. You know, it, the one th really nice thing about this is it's, it's a film that you and I both feel strongly about. I mean, I know it's your favorite. I, and, I mean, you said that day one. I know how passionate you are about this movie. And for me, I would say this is the film that took my love of horror 
in a slasher direction. I mean, you know, I grew up loving, you know, Night of the Living Dead. I was infatuated with zombies. I liked really fantastical films. But this one, I did. I saw this earlier than a lot of them. I saw this before I saw anything of Jason. Um, I, you know, and, and this is one that really, I think, impacted my love for the slow burn horror. Like, I love a slow, un, like, developing story with lots of suspense and drawn out moments. And this movie, I would honestly say, is a major reason for that. This movie is the movie that, you know, inspired me to be a filmmaker and to study film and to um, just embrace film and, and consume film because I, I will literally say, and I will die on this grave, this film is a fucking masterpiece of horror. Uh, this film does everything right, in my opinion. And I mean, it's the perfect horror film. I know, you know, it's a shame the film gets overshadowed by Halloween. And I know there are Halloween, diehard Halloween fans that think Halloween is the greatest horror film of all time. You know, I get it. I see it. But you cannot deny the influence that Black Christmas had on Halloween. And we're going to get there. But Black Christmas, remember, folks, for you, for you youngins, Black Christmas came out in 1974. Okay. Full four years before Halloween. And when you watch this film, I'm sorry, you cannot, like I said, deny the influence that this film had on John Carpenter from the opening fucking shots of the film are virtually identical. Um, and I love Halloween. I'm, that is not a diss at all. I'm glad John Carpenter was inspired by this film. I just wish that he would talk about it a little more. And I wish this film would get the recognition that I think it deserves that is bestowed upon Halloween 99% of the time. One big thing I think that's worth acknowledging early on is while Halloween, you know, managed to it take another holiday and run with that. And, and I think it just made sense. You know, when people think Halloween and they think of that season, people are naturally drawn to the genre. And so I think they made a really smart move with taking this kind of base core storyline and molding it to fit their needs, um, you know, for that season. But overall, I would say in most every aspect, this film is technically a superior film. It's shot better. It looks prettier. There's less flaws. You know, Halloween has some very notorious flaws, things that, um, you know, issues like the, the fact that the, the, the knife goes through uh, the body and it manages to support the guy in the door, even though it's clearly uh, there's no way that that knife was that long. You know, there's certain things that just like don't maybe translate or just kind of had a little hiccups. Whereas I feel when I watch this movie, I'm really shocked at how just smooth and polished and well executed it is from beginning to end. It's a stunning film. It's beautifully shot. It really took the POV, uh, the usage of the POV from the perspective of the killer. It took that. It mastered it. I don't think another film has used it better. Another thing this film does very well that has been, you know, used, utilized in other films, not as successfully, but uh, is the use of shadows. You, I really noticed that this time around. And and sound. Um, one of the things that makes this film unsettling, one of the creepiest parts of this film, I think, is is just the sorority house itself and how massive it is and how you know when you get towards the end of the film olivia hussey's in there claire uh barb and phil are upstairs sleeping and she's just on the cat on the sofa and all you hear are, are these creaks 
and the music and just how atmospheric the house is and you know that this unknown killer is just lurking and you can hear you can hear creaks you can hear shadows it's just very unsettling but I, I, we, we're going to say a lot about this film, so oh, I, I want to get into it because I don't want this we to be are. a three-hour episode. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I got let me let me touch on one more thing because I, I want to say this early on, building off what you're saying and building off the fact that technically how advanced it is. Um, you know, we watched some movies recently that felt of the era that they were shot in. And one thing I think that's amazing about this movie is though it looks visually, the style and everything looks very of the seventies. I am shocked at how across the board advanced this movie is down to the acting, how natural the acting is and the material they touch on. This film has aged so well in the context of what they're delving into, just his character. How timely is this? We are going to discuss Jess's character as a great feminist um, example of feminist power in a horror film. You So often you hear people criticize horror films uh, because they exploit women. Um, this one, come on. And Jess is one of the original final girls. Like I said, this was 74. This was before Friday the 13th. This was before uh, Halloween. This was the same year Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. And if you compare like Jess's character to Sally Hardesty, you have two completely different types of final girls. You have the helpless, babbling, uh, uncontrollable one that's losing her fucking mind. And you have Jess, who is strong, resourceful, sticks to her fucking wits. Um, and I just... We, we will talk about that. There's so much yes. to talk about. With so this much. Film. But you are right. This film, I'm sorry, this film is highly influential. And I am pissed to this day that this film does not get the recognition it deserves for the influence it has had on the horror genre because you can see it plastered on all kinds of other films that came after it. But let's get into it. This is uh, Black Christmas, 1974. It's a Canadian production, which I, makes me wonder if that's why the film never really you know, took off because it was a Canadian film, but it is interesting. And I am, I'm very proud. I would say the last 15 years, I feel like this film has gotten a little bit more recognition and a little bit more, um, acclaim for its obvious impact on the genre. So that's really great to see. You see it now popping up on best of horror lists all the time. I know the shutter just did their, uh, you know, top 100 scariest movie moments, and it was pretty high on that list. So it is really great to see that transpiring because it deserves it. But the film was directed by Bob Clark, which interestingly enough, Roger, you know the other Christmas film he directed, right? Everyone does. Oh, I know it. It was shot in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. It was shot, and, I, and I visited that house when I visited you in Cleveland all those years ago. Full circle moment right now. Full circle. <laughs> it was a Christmas story. It's so interesting to know that he directed two of the best Christmas films of all time, and they were so polar opposite of each but other. But isn't it funny to think... When it comes down to the core aspects of what make Christmas Christmas, no wonder at the same time that he was able to produce both this and and that other film that very much in their own ways perfectly capture the season. They feel cold, frigid, uh, dark. You know, this is a very dark film. There's very little daylight when you think of the season and you feel it here. I mean... This movie feels like it's predominantly set at night, and it it, it adds to the fear factor because there's something about a cold winter's night that I find just terrifying. Oh, yeah. The atmosphere that this film is able to create is quite something to behold, I think. Very few films can capture, I think, what this film did in terms of just the 
the claustrophobic uh, feeling of of being in a in a space that's that's enclosed, like the sorority house. So like I said, you're in this house. It's you. You don't really want to go outside because it's so fucking cold, and you know that there's these creepy calls coming. Um, someone's terrorizing you. Your your friends aren't answering you. I mean, just the, the everything that this film is able to capture, and then the scene when they they go to look for the little girl in the park. You just the the coldness permeates from the screen. It's just brilliant, brilliant. Uh, I, I'm gonna okay. So the film opens up with a beautiful sorority house. And it's decorated for Christmas. One thing that I do like about this film, if you're going to do it, and we talked about this, if you're going to do a Christmas film, it better fucking look like Christmas. I want to see some Christmas lights. I want to see Christmas trees. I want to see all that shit. And this film, first of its kind, first real Christmas themed horror film, I think does it right. The, 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 the decorations look great right away. You know, it's Christmas. You get it. You get that beautiful haunting score. The bell score that plays over the opening title card. Christmas is omnipresent throughout this entire film. It's always in. It's if it's not physically in the shot, you hear it in your ears. You see it in the hot cocoa they're drinking. It is just so present in every single frame of this film. Yeah. So you see a character enter the sorority house, which we end up we find out we can assume is Jess based on the clothing that the character is wearing, and then you get the POV of someone approaching the house, breathing heavily staking out the house you'd never see this person and again you just see the shadow of the person like hit the side of the house kind of looking in as people are partying inside the house and inside the house you have you're right away introduced to the sorority sisters and they are having a party you have of course the standout i think of the entire film margot kidder as barb god let's take a minute and fucking pay our respects to margot kidder because one of the most natural performances of the era I can possibly think I of. I agree. She is so fucking great in this role. And she's playing a drunk, which could easily go so over the top. But she manages to keep it so grounded while being so just fucking, in her words, schnockered out of her fucking mind. And, and she just does such an amazing job with it. But evenly dispersed among what I would say is all the, the major players, at least with the females – I don't really think there's a weak link is what's awesome about this cast that we're about to be introduced to. You have one of the finest ensembles of young women within the genre. All of them are strong. They're all acted extremely well. They all have great scenes uh, of suspense in which they really get to kind of give us these great dramatic moments. And um, I think it's just a really awesome cast right off the bat. And I think the characterization is is quite well done. These characters are very... Uh, three-dimensional they're very fleshed out they're very likable i feel like this is a film that actually likes its characters wants to spend time with its characters isn't like rushing to get them killed which you know a lot of slasher films characters are disposable these characters we spend a lot of time with and really get to know some of their some of their personal struggles uh, right away, for example, Barb gets a phone call from her mother, and within a, a, a literally a twenty-second phone call, we, the viewers, can make such a major inference into like her relationship with her mom, right? Because she gets a phone call, she's super excited that her mom's calling her, so she goes out in the hallway to take the phone call so she can hear it better, and it's her mother on the phone. And as she's talking to her mother, this unknown figure, still lurking outside, begins to climb the terrace that's attached to the side of the house to the uh, attic 
to get into the attic window. They use a lens on the POV for the killer that has almost like kind of a fisheye feel to it. And in a lot of these shots, uh, it, it really adds to it. I mean, it adds to his perspective. It feels uh, like you're there. You're there. You're seeing exactly what he's seeing as he's climbing through the window. It has that really kind of creepy fisheye vibe to it. Uh, and you can see the whole process of this man literally scaling the side of this house, completely going unnoticed and entering the house. You see it enter and it's horrifying. It's really quite terrifying. But again, watch this. Okay. So watch this opening, watch this opening, the POV of the killer going, approaching the house, climbing the terrace, getting in the attic, and then watch the opening of Halloween with Michael Myers, young Michael Myers, putting on the Halloween mask and, and changing, almost getting that bird's eye POV that you're talking about. Fish eye POV that you're talking about ascending the stairs into Judas Myers room. It's, it's very similar, very similar. And you can't tell me that he did not see this film. Oh, well, uh, come on now. I mean, absolutely. There, it, it works for a reason, and that's why people... And again, I love Halloween. I am yeah. not harping on Halloween. But um, but yeah, it's terrifying. It's terrifying that this person so casually just approaches the house. And this is like... I mean, this is the first 30 seconds of the film, and already we are getting this, you know? Earlier, you mentioned the audio, and I even want to point out here, it's the simple things, the howling wind. You know, you hear it as he's, when it cuts back to the outside, there's always the presence of this howling wind that you hear. And um, you hear the sound of like Christmas, festive Christmas music coming from the inside. You can hear it soft and muffled. And it just adds such an eeriness to it because there's something about you know, it's just Christmas carols in general that they have like a creepy factor, in my opinion, because they're always very like olden and like, you know, children's choirs, which I find terrifying. Uh, it just, I don't know, it adds so much to it. And it's always, like I said, always present. So it just gives you this constant, uneasy feeling from right off the bat. Yeah. And again, we find out that Barb's mother is canceling their Christmas plans so she can go away with her boyfriend. And Barb is not too happy and, and even says, Mom, you're a real gold-plated whore. God, I fucking love her so I, much. She, the, some of the lines in this film, I'm sorry, should be way more iconic than what they are. I, I could repeat these lines to people all the time. I mean, it's so – this movie has so many great lines. You know I love that goddamn turtle oh, monologue. The, we're going to touch on it a little bit. Oh, yeah, we're getting there. So oh the God. killer, we see then the killer ascend the um, attic. This attic is fucking creepy. This is why. Okay, I can tell you, I've always been terrified of these types of attics, and I this this movie is why I fucking hate these attics. The little ho- the little holes in the it. wall, the little things. You- no, uh, no, I don't want that in my house. Get it out. The, the, and this is why you don't know what the fuck's up there. And this person, we see him slowly open the attic door and climb down and he's watching barb on the phone with her mother he's watching claire and chris kiss and then roger we are treated to the phone ringing again and olivia hussey answering the phone so aggressively every time (laughs) i was just gonna say i love her i love everything she brings to the table but jess answers the phone so forcefully (laughs) it's uncomfortable and if it's not this this you know, heavy breathing voice that we're about to encounter. What if it's just a random person calling to wish a Hello? Merry Christmas? She's like, Hello? Like, I can't even do it. I have no voice. Listeners, I got bronchitis. You got to know I it. got bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time for that. But um, but when, okay, this whole moment, I, I really want to focus on this because it's it sets up a shot that's used consistently throughout the course of the movie. And it's honestly one of my favorite establishing aspects of the film. 
you get a moment of this really wonderful pan from that horrifying hellhole of an attic (laughs) over down the steps to Barb, who is completely unaware. And they do this multiple times. You get these really creepy slow pans either to or from the attic. So you always, as a viewer, you're always reminded that there is something in there to fear. And it's such a great move because it always pans over to someone who has no fucking idea. But you know, as the viewer, they keep reminding you with this strategic shot. And I love that they do this. It keeps this constant level of dread right from the very beginning of the house. He's in the house. You know it. You as the viewer are aware of it. And and nobody else knows. So it's like your dirty little secret. It's so uncomfortable. It's great cinematography is what it is. Um, it's, it's using the camera in a very clever way to, again, give the viewer to create what you just said, uneasiness in the viewer. We know based on the camera movement and how, and what the camera is showing us, we know that there's something uneasy there. It's again, ahead of its time. I mean, this film was doing stuff that just, you didn't see in a, a slasher film. And in fact, slasher films were weren't even really a thing before this film came out. Sure. You had like psycho and peeping Tom and we have to acknowledge peeping Tom also used POV shots as well. Um, I think this film definitely upped the uh, effectiveness of, of a POV shot in, in giving us that, you know, like I said, the, the, the bird eye view of the killer and what he is seeing and what the audience is seeing through his eyes. But this is the first phone call. And I love the fact that Roger, this is that again, this film pulls no punches. It's starting with a bang because this is probably the most graphic phone call of all of them. And it's the first one. And this is when, you know, it's him again, the Mona. <laughs> like all these girls are already clued in. It's clear that this is not the first time. This exactly. Again, called. that's why I want because obviously these phone calls, this person has been making these calls for how long we don't know, but it, think about that and how creepy it is because it makes your imagination go. Okay. So, has this person like zeroed in on this particular sorority house and somehow found out where it is and is now there after terrorizing it for, for how, who knows how long, or has this person always been in the house and just left and is going back? Do they know it's, it just your imagination. It's, it's so like ambiguous. We can, we can, we can, create our own story about who this is because it's very apparent this is not the first time this person is called they've been he's been making these calls obviously a lot because it's really been a, uh, an issue with this with jess i mean she says it's it's him again there's there's obviously um other dialogue that leads us to believe this has been going on for a while so very interesting, but it's uh, all the girls gather around and there's, a, I mean, can we talk about these phone calls, Roger? The, the intensity of them, the, what do you even want to say? The, the batshit craziness of them, how one person is able to make all these different noises, these gurgling and gargling and slurping. And what I think really adds to these calls, aside from like the, the execution is just terrifying. I mean, honestly, the delivery of it, it, it sounds horribly obscene. Um, And it's very uncomfortable to listen to. But I really love the way that that it's coming through the phone, the audio, they distort it. At times, like if the voice yells, the phone like crackles and distorts. 
it sounds like it's coming through an old school phone. It's not like always the most clear audio. At times, certain things that the voice is saying is are completely um, like inaudible for the most part. You can't really decipher everything, but you get like you get bits and pieces, and you start hearing piggy, pig cunt, you know, pink little cunt, like these little bits of these things that sound really really shocking when you hear them. And so you you specifically start listening very closely and you pretty soon realize you're like almost one of the girls around the phone. You are listening, trying to really decipher what this voice is saying. And when you do realize what it's saying to these girls, it, it, it's extremely offensive. It's vulgar as hell. And I was thinking this is the early 70s. And, and they were, I mean, let me lick it. Let me lick your pretty piggy cunt. And I'm like, oh, for God's sakes. And then you have Claire, you know, she's like, could that be one person? But it makes a point. It makes a, I mean, it is valid. Like one of the most shocking things of this, of this delivery is it starts to almost develop an alternate personality. There's several personalities and that's terrifying in its own right. Uh, But I love how they completely kind of just like blow Claire off. I do want to acknowledge real quick, Claire I mean, this cast is is pretty stacked when it comes to genre favorites, but even Claire is Lynn Griffith, who we remember from Curtains, and she was the lead in Curtains, and she's definitely one of the best aspects of that movie. So it's really nice seeing her in in what are two pretty standout films from the era. Um, She's really lovely in this role. It's brief, but in the little amount of time we spend with Claire, I feel like we get to know very well the kind of girl she is. Yeah, no, Claire. It's the t- Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their annual obscene phone call. Yeah, I mean, you get bar, you get Barb right away taking charge. She's 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 like enjoying the phone call. It seems like she's like, oh, he's up to his game, and then she takes the phone away, and she's like, why don't you call Lamb Bukai? They could use some of this. <laughs> and he's like, you cunt! I'll go stick your tongue in a light socket. That'll give you a charge. <laughs> he's like, you bitch. Yeah, and then she says something like, you f- bastard, and he's and I this. Hey, this part is so creepy because after she's like, you bastard, he very calmly says, I'm going to kill you. Oh, it is fucking so creepy because everything else has been so heightened up to this point. Uh-huh. All the dialogue has been so big, screaming and yelling. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like that is the one only moment of that we ever get that this is like, whoever this is, that's truly his real voice. It's so shocking that for you know the way the car- the killer is portrayed, which is very uh, ambiguous. Um, I mean, he's there, but you never really clearly see anything. But you really get to know quite a lot of this individual in the sense of how they act, how they react, such big reactions. It's it's surprising to me how I really feel like I get quite a good idea of who Billy is while not knowing barely anything about him at all. Oh yeah, there's a there's a story that is definitely um, fleshed out through these phone calls, and yeah, we get a really good idea of of Billy, his history, um, and I think that's where the remake, the 2006 remake, which we reviewed last year, took the elements of these phone calls and fleshed it out into the story that we are we can infer. I think in a, maybe a more extreme way, but. I mean, it's there. It's there. People that say, oh, this it's, it is ambiguous, but there is a story. Like, you know 
what this killer did when he was a kid. You know his backstory based on these phone calls. If you're if you're listening, I, I love that you mentioned the remake. I don't want to touch on it too much because this is its own review. But I do have to say, after watching this back again, it made me kind of appreciate the 2006 remake that much more because they fucking did their homework. So much of the little things that are acknowledged here, little things that come up, are are fleshed out in that film, maybe not to everyone's liking, but it's coming from a source material, a groundwork that is established in this film, even up to the the first death scene that we're about to see that's coming up. It's directly inspired. It's just expanded upon. So Claire tells Barb she shouldn't provoke someone like that. And Barb's like, oh, I deal with more than that in the city each day. And Claire's like, still, that townie got raped in the park last week or whatever. And Barb's response is, darling, you can't rape a townie. And Claire's like, you really are too much. And she goes upstairs to pack. In the meantime, we get our first introduction to the house mother, Mrs. McHenry, played by the lovely, fabulous Marion Waldman. I can never decide if Miss Mac is my favorite character or Barb is because they are both equally just uh, characters. Characters. These are characters. Yeah. Every single character in this film feels defined. In my opinion, every every single one, um, and even Mrs. Mac, like I forgot how much fucking fun her character. I would totally live in this sorority oh house with God. Mrs. Mac. The one-liners. Oh, her drunk ass hiding booze all over the place, and in you know toilets? she was she was a Bonville star. If you notice, every time when the killer makes the phone call on her nightstand, there's an album of her and her sister, the Mac Henry sisters. Oh my God, I love it, and this is where she's at now, and she's so miserable. But God, <laughs> her. Some of her lines in this are some of the funniest lines I, I have heard within the horror genre. I mean, when they hit humor in this movie, it is very funny. To this day, it holds up. I was going to say, I, this movie is equal parts funny as it is terrifying. And that's a really hard balance to maintain. There are laugh out loud moments in this film. Then there are moments that make your fucking skin crawl. As the tagline, if this movie doesn't make your screen, screen crawl, it's on too tight. I mean, it, the, the comedy in this film, it hits hard. I mean, and we'll get to some of those moments. But we are now approaching the first death scene. Claire is upstairs packing, and Claude, the cat, is in her room, and she gives Claude a little you know, belly rub and tells him that she needs to uh, get packing. And as she goes into the closet, I do like this shot because she gets her suitcase out of the closet, and there's dry cleaning bags, and there's like a zoom in on the dry cleaning bag, and you can see a distorted face behind it. Ugh! Ugh! Oh, it's honestly, I do not give the scene enough credit. Like when I sit down and I think of move of, of moments in horror that I think are top tier, some of the scariest scenes I can think of. For some reason, this isn't one of the first things that comes to me. But watching the buildup of this sequence and how hard it is to make out, you know, it's it's not easy. Like you really got to squint a bit to to really make out the figure standing behind this this dry cleaning bag when you realize what you're seeing it's fucking chilling it's chilling and it's so slow and drawn out and at first she doesn't even realize it it's not until she starts getting closer and then claire starts having this these bits of dialogue where she's like who is that who's in there like she starts to realize it well the killer it starts the killer meows a few times to get her attention and so she thinks it's Claude. So she's walking towards the closet. And she's like, Claude, is that you? And then, yeah, she gets closer. She actually realizes that it's a person. 
Uh, and as she gets, ugh, as right as she approaches, the fucking killer launches out and throws the, the dry cleaning bag over her head. And he's like, Rah! and growls. And it immediately cuts to Mrs. Mac um, <laughs> getting a nightgown for Christmas from the girls. I have to say that I feel one of the finest strengths of this film is when it chooses to cut and how it chooses to cut into another sequence. Because consistently over the course of this movie, there are multiple hard cuts. And they work. And they work so fucking well. And I would normally, I'll say this, I would normally say I want to see more. Like, I love what they show me of the bag going over the head, but the way they do it and the fact that they keep coming back to what is going to be revealed here, it it seems so intentional and so well-timed out, and it's just fucking terrifying. This is a masterclass execution of a kill sequence. And editing, right? I mean, yeah, I'm not a fan of usually of really hard cuts, but this film does it quite well. I mean, so Mrs. Mack gets this... uh, nightgown from the girls and they want her to try it on and she's like try it on i'm not going to bed and as she's you know she's fine i'll try it on as she's trying it on we go back up to the stairs the camera slowly goes back up to the stairs to the main like foyer area where the attic thing is and you see the shadow of the killer carrying claire's body to the attic oh my god it's another one of those really fucking amazing pans where you just get the shadow as it's moving across the carpet, as the camera's slowly moving, implying that, you know, you're seeing something. Again, you as the viewer are seeing something that nobody else is even aware of. It's, it's so well executed. And now we get, uh, you know, one of Mrs. Mac's prominent personality traits along with Barb. She's uh, apparently an alcoholic. So she has booze hidden all over her house and her first little hiding place. She goes into her study and gets the dictionary and she turns it to B for booze and she is just uh, pleased with herself she takes a big old swig from it when jess comes behind her walks in the room and there's this little moment where you know uh, mrs mac is like jess you girls are just too good to me oh mrs mac we are not and then the phone rings phil answers it and it ends up being peter who we find out is jess's boyfriend and so she answers the phone and he is uh, been practicing for this recital for days, so they haven't really seen each other. And she tells him she needs to talk to him face to face and that she will talk to him later because it's important. Peter is right off the bat portrayed as very uh, domineering and cold and very much uh, in a, uh, talks to her in a way that seems like he's talking down to Jess. And Jess is surprisingly enough for that era a woman who does not want to be talked down to or put in her place. And and one of the great things we see over the course of this, this story arc is her kind of just standing up to him and standing by her beliefs. It's very well played. It is. And you know what I like about it is she does it without it being like, she does it very like calmly. Uh, she never like is screeching and yelling and, and, and falling into that trope. It's very like, no, I don't want to do this. Sorry. I don't know what to tell you. It's not like she becomes a hysterical woman. They don't go to that trope at all. What I find extremely impressive, to be honest, Roy, is in a way, this this film kind of flips the what becomes the norm. It takes it, it flips it. You've got a male who is an unusually emotional character, we come to find out. He's very emotional. At one point, he destroys a piano. Um, and then you've got the female lead who is 
extremely calm and collected and always trying to steer the ship in the right direction and and deal with this uh, artist as she just she, she blames that on being an artist at one point but his emotional outburst it's really not like something we often see where it's the woman who's put in the place of of control of, over her emotions and the man who's crumbling before her you know we do uh, see a, a short scene of Mrs. Mack, and we can we acknowledge her drinking booze out of a toilet? <laughs> Again, thrilled with herself. <laughs> yes. I don't know how long it's been in that toilet bowl, but she does not care. She even gargles with it. Um, at the same time, Jess is at Claire's door knocking, and of course, there's no answer. And this is when we hard cut again to this first image of fucking Cl- oh, Claire in the rocking chair up in the attic with the bag still over her face, rocking. As Billy is singing, bye-bye, bunting, daddy's gonna hunting. And I love Roger how, as he finishes the line, the chorus, it slowly fades into the next day. It is such a strong cut. Again, I mean, like, so specific to be like, I love the cuts in this film, but... The way they they time it out, all of a sudden it's just you get this like really hard cut to her just rocking, and you have the creaking of the rocking chair, and there's a really great sound, uh, like audio flare with it. And I think one of the big reasons these cuts work so well is they're already always not only is the cut itself, the visual cut, uh, really harsh and abrupt, but the audio always really transitions in a harsh way too, that gives you kind of an extra oomph to it. So it feels really shocking and intentional. Um, and yeah, this is one of my favorite moments in the film. That shot of her just rocking into frame, the plastic sucked into her mouth. You can tell, you know, that she was um, suffocated with the plastic, literally like sucked into her mouth because she was lacking air. It's just so creepy. Well, it is, it's the next day and it's Claire's dad is waiting for her. We find out it's her dad and he gets hit in the face with a snowball, which it looked like it hurt. They must've really, they, I think they really threw it at that guy. They had to have, because I, it hits him pretty hard. It knocks his glasses off. Um, the teacher comes running over and it's like, Oh, I apologize. I should have been watching the kids better. And you know, Claire's dad asks, Hey, I was supposed to meet my daughter here. Do you know Claire Harrison? And he's like, well, yeah, I do know her. Um, you know, she's, the, her sorority house is just not too far from here. So the first introduction to Claire's dad, who does become sort of a, I don't want to say a prominent figure, but he's a pretty, he's in the film for quite a, quite a while. He motivates a lot of the events that occur. Yeah. And, and I like that he is the more like stern, serious type because he's surrounded then by characters who are definitely not that. When man's put through the mill, I mean, he's, you know, he's obviously he's hunting for his daughter the entire course of this film, and it's becoming more and more of a dilemma. But right off the bat, yeah, he's always surrounded by incompetent people who are either intoxicated or just bumbling, and he's just trying to figure out where the fuck his daughter is. The cops are shitty to him. Like, this poor guy, he's kind of a prick, but he doesn't deserve to go through this. <laughs> no, and then you get, ho, 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 shit. Claire or Phil's boyfriend playing Santa Claus is pissed off because now Phil is going skiing with Barb and isn't Santa naughty. He's so crass in front of all these children. Every line he Uh, says is, is consists of swearing. There's a little girl in his lap. He's like, ho, 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 fuck. Santa has a foul mouth. This whole sequence, though, that follows between Mrs. Mack and Mr. Harrison. Again, when we were talking about humor hitting, I mean, this is like an ongoing sequence of just kind of like 
funny fucking moments with Mrs. Mack, like trying to like hide like the sexual imagery under her hand as she's leaning on the wall with that poster of the like of the nude people forming the peace sign. And like this really like stern, uptight Mr. Harrison is just like, I really don't approve of what I see here. And she's and she's just trying to smile it off. Like she's totally just trying to cover it all up with a smile and it's just it's such a funny moment between the two of them I, yeah i didn't bring my daughter here to to meet boys and drink booze oh well claire's a good girl mr harrison she i wouldn't want you to think otherwise uh and uh, mrs mac assures him she's probably at the charity party that the fraternity's putting on and mrs mac is like you know it's right down the street i can show you where it's at if you wouldn't mind giving me a, a ride i have to go to a store by there and he's like well i know where it's at but i'll give you a ride uh, and I love the, the scene at the bathroom where she's where she's mocking him. I didn't bring my daughter here to drink booze and meatballs. Tough shit. <laughs> also, she has what is one of the best lines in the film? These girls These would fuck the leading yeah. tower of Pisa if it. they could get up there. I love I mean, it. The way she delivers it, oh my god, this woman is hilarious. She's comedic gold. What do these bastards expect from me? <laughs> oh my god! And then like, there's that whole thing where she's like, oh. Thank you, Mr. Harrison. You're much too kind. And then, like, he shows up at, like, the bottom of the steps after she's, like, swearing to herself. And she's like, really, Mr. Harrison? You're much too kind. And, like, it's just, like, this ongoing thing between the two of them. They have this little joke going. Yeah, she spills her her purse looking for Claude. Claude! Oh my God! This this broad sh- searching for Claude. Yeah, and then all, when she's picking up the contents of her purse, she's like, "God damn it, Claude, you little prick!" Right as Mr. Harrison comes up the stairs, and yeah, she looks at him. She's like, "This is very kind of you, Mr. Harrison." And he, he, he's like, "No problem." And he turns around, and then she gives him the finger. <laughs> she's so good. She's oh, so good. Oh, I love it. But as they leave, you get that. I mean, you see, you see them go out to his car through the window in the attic as Claire's dead body is still rocking, which I find quite unsettling. Like, oh, Troy, one of my fucking favorite things about this, and I really realized it this when I was watching it. This movie continuously goes back to several of the corpses. Like, even though they're dead, they are still characters over the course of the film. You don't stop seeing Claire. In fact, she's one of the last things you see in the movie. It keeps going back to her, and then another character ends up perishing here soon, and is also a visual that we keep coming back to, and it adds, again, another really ominous note to this film that you as the viewer are clued in on that nobody else is at all aware of. Yeah, we don't even know if these bodies in the attic were ever found, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you're going to smell them eventually. <laughs> well, I mean, if people go back to the house, yeah. But uh, so the next scene, Jess, Jess is at the conservatory with Peter and their conversation gets pretty serious real quick because she tells him she's pregnant and he is ecstatic about it. He's like, oh, my God, Jess, that's great. And she's like, no, I don't want it. I want to have an abortion. Which again, the guys think of the time period, 74. Abortion was a hot, hot, hot topic, even more so than it is now. Although now it is quite, you know, at the forefront of the political spectrum as well. But you have this, think about this. You have this female character who is telling her boyfriend she is going to have an abortion. He tells her, you are not going to do this. And she's like, you can't tell me what I'm going to do. This is final. I'm, I, I'm having an abortion. And he's like, you selfish bitch you just get out of here so she storms away and he does stop her on the way and he's like hey 
we need to talk about this some more. And she's like, there's nothing more to say. And he's like, I think there is. I'm going to come over at nine. She's like, fine. But she has made up her mind. She's not going to let this man tell her what she's going to do. So I really am just shocked and baffled that this storyline managed to be something that like even passed or was like accepted in the like early 1970s. Like, I mean, I get it. Like abortion at this point was a thing and people were aware of it. And it was, you know, uh, a major focus at this point, women's healthcare in general, but how openly they're talking about it and how clearly she, uh, or how steadfast she is basically about, you know, the refusing to have this kid and it comes up more and more and she's like, no, I'm not willing to compromise. And it's just, you know, looking at this character, this clearly had to come out in a time where women's, you know, overall live in general was just such a big thing because it's really prominent here. It's really on display. And because of that, this movie, like I said earlier, has aged so gracefully. If anything, it becomes more relevant now in some ways. And having this character who is saying, you know, I get it. You want a kid. I'm not the one. I don't want to put my life on hold for you. I'm not going to do it. I cannot think of many movies since this film that provide such a uh, just a really stark viewpoint uh, on this situation and it's it's so unwavering it's not really trying to accommodate or appease any masses they're delving right into it which is an interesting point you make because it is a very very ballsy choice for the filmmakers the screenwriter to go that way with this Jess character because they were going to alienate a whole chunk of people who would automatically dislike this character right because she's going to get an abortion so, you know, all the pro-lifers are going to look at this character and be like, oh my God, she's horrible. We don't even want to deal with this character anymore. We hope she gets killed. So they, they, they ran that risk, but they, they make just such a three-dimensional, um, just tough, you know, tough character that it's really hard not to, you know, be on her side, especially with this, the glimpse of, of Peter's personality and demeanor that we get. We realize, and she realizes that Peter is not the one for her. It's very obvious. And, you know, I just have to say this, you know, I know the 2019 remake, right? We, we're not going to, I'm just going to say this was supposed to be the feminist, you know, version of the film with the themes it dealt with and with the female filmmaker, they got involved in with it and everything. This film, sorry. I mean, come on. You can't even compare the two theme thematically. This film knocks that out of the water. And this was 74. We didn't need a shoehorned feminist theme in the remake shoved down our throats. Oh, yeah, because they wrote it into the story. They didn't write the story. They around. did. They did. It was so like in your face, not even subtle. This film does it just beautifully. It's just intertwined into the story and it's not forced at all. I really quick need to acknowledge that pink fucking beret. I just got to say it. Got oh. Olivia Hussey that oh, oh. and that sweater with those hands. Oh my god, I was gonna say I forgot to mention I want her wardrobe. Oh I need this wardrobe. She has the best fucking wardrobe. And Barb with that choker. Oh come my on. god, come on. And then we got poor fucking Phil who in her oh. own right. Oh my god. We, we we haven't really got to Phil yet, but bless her heart. Andrea Martin, I love her. They brought her back for the remake to be the house mother, but she is no Marion Walden. Anything though, anything that fucking Andrea Martin touches, I'm gonna say is gold in my opinion. I mean, I love her in, in difficult people. I love her in anything. My big fat Greek wedding. But yeah. 
But anyways, back at the sorority house, uh, Mr. Harrison's talking to his wife on the phone about, you know, updating her about the status with not being able to find Claire when Barb is right in front of him getting this little boy drunk. I'm like, what, what is this scene? This would not fly by today's standards, but God, I wish it would uh, because it's hilarious. She's sitting there just encouraging the child to drink and she like looks over at, at the father and she's like, I think the little fucker schnockered. Uh, like, and the way she says it, she's so fucking drunk. I mean, she's obliterated. She does it so well. She looks at him. She's like, you're drunk, aren't you? And the little boy just like shakes his head. <laughs> oh my God. She's so fucking good. Like, and I, I said this earlier, but I just have to again bring it up. It's really easy to take a character who is constantly intoxicated and make them a parody. And the fact of the matter is, is while she is hilarious, it never feels forced or unnatural it just feels like this girl's a fucking lush um but it's it still even with barb this character who is chock full of funny moments feels extremely three-dimensional very well fleshed out even as a moment a little bit later where she kind of gets called out and you see like a moment of her feeling hurt and realizing she's fucked up and you know this movie takes time with each girl to really give them this human moment earlier with jess you had it on the stairs where she's trying to defend Claire and she says to Barb, she's like, you shouldn't be so hard on her. You know, it's been hard for her adjusting this little, that one little line mm-hmm. teaches you so much about Claire and so much about Jess, the fact that she's defensive of her sisters. So I find it so impressive that they managed to make these girls all feel so believable. Even in these little moments that at times are extremely humorous, they still managed to build this really rich universe that they're living in. And now we get our second phone call that Jess is able to answer. And this is when we first hear the name, Billy, Billy, what your mother and I must know is where'd you put the baby, Billy? And it's a quick phone call. I mean, but we hear the name, Billy, we hear the mention of a baby. I have a question for you, Troy. What? I mean, this is your favorite horror film of all time. What do you think Billy did? Technically, if you were going to like in your mind as someone who's watched it many a times, do you have kind of a story in your mind of what happened? Is it the 2006 storyline? <laughs> I mean, I think I think the 2006 storyline touches on w- what it is. I, I mean, I feel like Billy uh, was sexually molesting his sister, Agnes. There, there's, you know, and he one day he got caught doing it. Um, and his parents confronted him about it and he kept doing it to the point where he ends up killing her because there is that moment later on the film. One of the phone calls is like, uh, mentions a knife. Um, there's all these mentions of, don't you tell what we did, Agnes. And, 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 uh, you know, constantly what your mother and I must know is where'd you put Agnes? Where's Agnes? So obviously, I mean, that's very simply not to dwell. I mean, I could probably write a whole story about it, but I think that the, the Billy character was sexually molesting his sister and ended up killing her. I mean, is that kind of along the lines of what you, you have in your mind? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I, I guess if I was going to kind of extend upon the lore and everything, um, I like in the 2006, I like how they tie him back to the house. Mm-hmm. I do also want to acknowledge how much the house in the the remake it looks and feels like it does it does the hallways the long shots and everything i thought that was impressive but i i really like that i like to think that he's coming back here out of familiarity and it happens to be a sorority house now 
and there's all these girls, and obviously he has this sick, strange infatuation with girls that he's developed with his younger sister. So now he's targeting them, um, you know, because you know, creating that story in your head, I think it's fairly easy to get a basic idea of what it yeah. is. But it certainly adds to the the terror factor when you start to realize just who this person is. Yeah, see, I don't know, I don't know if um, I think that he used to live in this house. Um, I think it's kind of scarier that he didn't used to live in this house and that he just somehow, you know, attached himself to the the house, the character, the number. I don't know how he got the phone number and how he made it to this house, but it's, I don't know. I mean, that's the, that's the beauty about the movies. You can make up so many different scenarios in, in your head about who he is and why he is at this specific house, why he's targeting these specific girls. If there's any reason, or if it was just random, it will get to, you know, kind of something I wanted to talk about when we, with, with the phone calls, because this film is one of the first films to use phone calls as a, you know, means to terrorize its characters. I mean, think about, this was well before when a stranger calls well before scream. But I feel like this, the difference is like this character, when he calls these people, no matter who answers, he doesn't necessarily speak directly to them. It's not like a, when a stranger calls scenario where he's like, why haven't you checked the children? And she's interacting with them and he's answering her or scream where Ghostface is highly engaging with the person on the other. It's almost like this person just needs to call somebody. He doesn't care who it is. He's not asking them questions. He's not doing what he's doing is he's it's like he has this uncontrollable urge to relive this horrific moment from his childhood and he needs somebody to hear it. It doesn't matter who he's not really interested in them talking to him or questioning him. So it's different in that respect. And I think that just makes it even more creepier. You just have this unhinged person that just needs to call somebody so he can get this built up obviously deranged thing out of, out of a system that he did as a child. That's yeah. I think that, that really, I mean, if, if you're going to give an evaluation on the character, I think that's probably the, the, the best fucking description you can give in what you're saying regarding the fact that his calls, I don't think he's like, I'm looking for Jess. That's who I'm looking for. Jess just happens to be in this house and his being in that house with these girls develops his infatuation with them. And and the, I guess the only question I have, honestly, overall, is set the second phone line. Like, it, it, that's always baffled me. He's calling from inside the house. You know, we learn this pretty quick. But how does he know about the second phone line? And how does it exist in general to begin with? One plot element I've always been curious about. But, I mean, it's it's a small It's a small. It's Mrs. Max's separate line, right? Yeah, it's in her. It's in her room. It's a separate line. They, they mention it in the film. I, I you know, I've never fucking. Oh yeah, that. they mention it later on in the film. There's a moment where, um, when the well, we'll get there. But yeah, it is mentioned. It is this the phone that he's calling from is Mrs. Mac's private line. Oh my god! Now, how he knows the sorority house's number and how he managed to use that to get to the actual sorority house if he's been calling it before—that's the bigger mystery, I think. Um, but there is this. Now the scene is the uh, Phil. Barb and Chris uh, and Mr. Harrison are at the police station to make a report about Claire missing. And we are introduced to Sergeant Nash, who is characterized as kind of the dim-witted deputy, almost like a Barney Fife type. Uh, he's right away very dismissive of the idea that Claire's missing and even mentions that she might just be shacked up with somebody. And that kind of pisses everyone off. And there's this little confrontation between 
Barb and him when he tells her to shut up. And she's like, you know what? For a public servant, your attitude really sucks. <laughs> God, I love her so much in this fucking scene, though. Oh, oh and she God. cracks open a beer even. She's drinking right there in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Miss Mac, there's a quick scene of Miss Mac coming home with her groceries and stuff. Jess helps her in and tells her that there was another one of the phone calls. And Miss Mac is like, oh, really, honey? While she's looking for more booze. Uh, it cuts back to the police station. And Nash needs the phone number to the sorority house. Uh, so he asks Barb to give him the, the phone number to the sorority house. Now, I don't know. It, I love this joke, but this probably is the one that maybe aged the least good of all of them in the film. I don't know if you'd agree or not. Just because, you know, the age of like having a, a word for a phone number just is so far removed from anything I know or even you know, but I know it was a thing. Because the phone number that she gives him yeah. is fellatio two eight eight zero. She delivers it in a way though that's that's so well executed that I oh, think it's that deadpan. It's, it's deadpan. so deadpan that I think yeah. even I think that you could have somebody you know younger than us watch this and not necessarily get it, but still find the humor in it. Uh, but it does feel somewhat dated just because of the context alone. Yeah, because he's a ob- he's oblivious to it. And he's like she, he's like fellatio. And she's like, yeah, it's a new exchange. F e. <laughs> so after this, Jess goes to the hockey rink to tell Chris. Chris was not at the police station. It was Miss. It was uh, Mr. Harrison, Barb, and Phil. Chris is playing hockey. She tells him that Claire is missing, uh, and that the police aren't taking it seriously, and they 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 think he just that she just shacked up with somebody. Um, and so he's pissed. So he's going to go to the police station with them to get matters done. Now we cut to Peter in this piano recital with these dudes that are totally unimpressed. Well, I understand why <laughs> it's horrible. It's yeah. so bad. <laughs> it's so awful for a, yeah, for a professional piano player. It is quite quite not good. And they are not in, the one even looks at his watch. He's like, when is this fucking going to end? So we cut back to the police station. There's a lot of action going on. We cut back to the police station and we are, we, we kind of observe Janice's mother, this, this new woman telling uh, officer Fuller or uh, Lieutenant Fuller, who's played by John Saxton, who we all know. Oh my God. Looking so good. Daddy Daddy from nightmare on Elm street. uh, He's yeah, he's great. Uh, About her little daughter, Janice is missing. She never came home from school. Um, and that she knows she walks through the park to get home from school. And he's like, are you sure she's just not running late? And she's like, oh, no, we were supposed to go get a Christmas present for her dad. So there's a whole new kind of story arc that's added in that comes into play. At this very moment, Chris storms into the police station, knocking the wreath off the door, screaming at Nash for having a big goddamn mouth. Matt Nash, you have a big goddamn mouth. I feel that this whole arc with, you know, the the additional uh, girl missing, the parent, it could have easily felt like something that felt um, maybe kind of felt shoehorned in or felt like a little dislocated or disjointed, but it plays so well into what the storyline is overall, this growing dread within the city, the fear that something's happening, it keeps coming back into play. Again, I'm going to ask you your opinion. Do you think the girl? Don't ask me. Don't ask me the same thing I was going to ask you, and I think you are going to. If he, if Billy killed the girl in the park, in my mind, in my expanded universe of what we're watching, 
I think I like to think yes because it sh- it shows that he's been targeting girls at random, which I think is scarier. I kind of I like the idea. Here's the thing: as I like the idea, I I honestly I actually agree. I think that whoever this killer is, this Billy, I think he killed this little girl in the park. And in my mind, for, to get him back at the sorority house, it makes sense to me that he has been at the sorority house before. He knows exactly how to get in. He goes up that terrace. He goes in the attic. He didn't even hesitate to do it. So I think he's been hiding out in the sorority house and making these calls from this house for quite a while. He just happened this night, this day to venture out of the sorority house. And while he was out, he ran into this little girl in the park and, and killed her. And that when the, the opening of the film is him returning from the park after killing the little girl. Yeah. Otherwise I really, I can't wrap my head around why they would introduce it as a plot point. If it wasn't, if that, if it didn't tie in. And I really think that I, I personally think Billy killed this little girl and the opening of the film is him coming back from just killing her. And he's been comfortably living in the attic of this sorority house for God knows how long making these calls. It's never really explained. Yeah. Cause the calls um, have already been happening. That's a really good point. Yeah. 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 So now we get the dinner scene, which is the funniest fucking moment of the movie. Mrs. Mac, Barb, Phil, and Mr. Harrison are at the dinner and they're just having a little time when, when Barb all of a sudden, just chimes in. She's like, you know, there's a certain species of turtle that can screw for three days straight. You don't believe me, do you? Three days. <laughs> she is delivering probably my favorite line in the whole goddamn fucking film. This monologue. Do you know? Do you know? Like the fact that she like repeats it. <laughs> yeah, there's a species of turtle that fucks for three days straight. Like it is so well delivered. I cannot get over this bit. They're just looking at her. The father's just looking at her with a look of just shock and disgust. And she keeps going and going. And, and that does start to get kind of heated. How do you know? Well, I went to the zoo and watched. <laughs> But I got bored, so I went and watched the zebras because they only last three thirty seconds. <laughs> Premature ejaculation, <laughs> and then yeah, and then it turns very the, the whole tone shifts because she's like, "You think it's my fault, don't you? You think it's my fault she's missing? And if she's dead, you're gonna blame me." I mean, it comes explosive. They like feels like Claire, or Barb, you're drunk. I don't give a fuck about Mister Harrison. I'm tired of people not saying what they really mean. Yeah, and it, it, it and then finally feel very kind of aggressively. He's like, Barb, you're drunk. Go to bed. And doesn't even acknowledge anymore. And you, this is right. You get that moment where Barb realizes, oh, fuck, what have I done? And she's like, oh, okay. And she just she goes to bed um, where she spends the, re- the rest of the movie. We do get a nice shot of Peter destroying the piano, which gives us a glimpse that he can be violent. But I mean, I don't blame the guy. This is something he's been working for for how long? He's been in this con. But it's not his piano. I know. But <laughs> guy, he says he's been, you know, he even makes the comment later on in the film. He's tired of living in one room with five guys and sharing one toilet, blah, blah, blah. He's frustrated. This was his way out of that. And now he's. I get it. But this, that's not fair. He, he can't just be destroying <laughs> pianos willy nilly. I don't know. One other thing that happened kind of in the midst of all this, because I like it kind of goes, the movie paces itself so well. It's always jumping back and forth. You're following different groups of people. And at one point, we did have Jess, who has kind of taken it on herself to actively help look for Claire. She goes to the ice rink 
where the where several of the, the boys are playing hockey, and she finds Chris. I I, I want to go back to this in the sense of the character of Chris is another character who kind of like becomes a side player over the course of the film. And you, you kind of see him come back into play. You even see him in the last scene. But I do like that they keep introducing all of these other kind of sidelining side characters that we're, we're getting to know over the course of the film so that you are, even though you know that Billy is who he is and that you're aware that this killer is like operating within this house and so forth, you still also have reasons to kind of like have a little bit of doubt towards other people. Like I'd still doubt Peter and I know he's not the killer, but I still think like there's something maniacal about him. So I really think this movie does such a shockingly good job of providing red herrings, even when you are mostly aware of who the killer is right off the bat. You get what I mean? Yeah, you're right. And what is interesting is the the men in this film, like Peter, Chris, the men that are introduced and are kind of prominent figures, they all kind of have the similar look, the shaggy hair, you know, the lean bodies and the glimpses we do get of the killer, which we do get a, a maybe like two, particularly the one in, in Barb's death scene. It's, it looks kind of the same. I mean, the shaggy hair. Yeah. So it, it really could be like, Oh my God, is that Peter? Oh my God, is that Chris? Because they all look right. very similar. So I think that was another really brilliant thing for them to do from the police station. The group goes back to the, um, to the sorority house, Jess and, you know, Chris, and they get, they get Phil and Mr. Harrison to go join the search party in the park for the little girl, right? And before Phil leaves, Mrs. Mack is like, oh, I'm going to go away to my sister's for the holiday, so I may not be here when you get back. So that leaves us with that. So nobody's really worried about where Mrs. Mack goes when she's not there when they get back. Um, at the park, they listen to the instructions that Lieutenant Fuller is giving them for the search party. And now I get Mrs. Mack looking looking mighty good in her in her little gray polyester ensemble with that hat singing. She's singing, alligators, come through the gate. She's having her moment. She's having her moment. The taxi honks for her, and she gets her stuff, and she's getting ready to go. When she hears Claude meowing in the attic. God damn it, Claude. And Claude is in the attic because we forgot there is a quick scene of him licking face of poor Claire up in the rocking chair. So Billy must have taken Claude in the attic. Now this scene is very cleverly deliberately paced because she's walking through the house quiet. You just hear this, this faint from the attic and she slowly goes towards the, the hatch of the attic to the state, to the ladder leading up to the attic hatch. And she's like, Claude, is that you? And you keep hearing, and you don't know if it's really him. I don't think it's really Claude. I think it's the killer luring her up there. And as she's climbing, you're like, don't go up there, you dumb broad. She's like, I don't know how you could even be in this attic, right? So why would you go up there to look? How did the cat get in the fucking attic? Anyways, she climbs up the attic. She opens it and you know she's looking around and she's like, God damn it, Claude. I'm going to have you neutered. And this is when she catches a glimpse of Claire. In the rocking chair, rock, you know, sitting there, and her face is like, oh, fuck. And then we, she hears like a grunting. And this whole time, Billy has been kind of in the corner of the attic holding this uh, hook that's on this pulley. 
And right as she sees him, before she can do anything, he swings the hook at her and it hits her in the face and lifts her up. And it's a pretty violent sounding death. You don't see much except her little feet flail and her high heels fall off. But you hear it for quite a while, her gurgling and screaming. This death sequence is, in my opinion, fucking phenomenal. Again, you're and you're right. You don't see a lot. This whole movie, you don't really see... I mean, you don't see any like knife penetrating flesh or anything, but it's so well executed and so brilliantly shot and so well timed that you really just don't care. You know, it's not like when we watched Friday the 13th and we had some critiques and some issues uh, regarding several of the major deaths over the course of the film. This, you know, I, I don't feel that way about this death scene. I think this feels very intentionally crafted. And there's that one fucking phenomenal shot as she's coming up the the, the steps or up the ladder uh, into the crawl space. And you see that great zoom in of the hands holding the hook and it just zooms in. And I love me a 70s zoom. I mean, I fucking love it. And it's just, you get all these really great establishing shots. You get a POV shot of his hands holding the hook, just waiting, waiting for her to turn around. And that moment when she sees that fucking Claire in the window, I mean, the look on her face, i that is how I would react. I wouldn't know what to do. I would just be like, oh, 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 oh. I would just be sitting there like looking like dumbfounded. And she turns and it's just, bam, the violence of her legs going up is enough. You know her body's being yanked up because that pulley is yanking her, you know, and it's brutal. The shoe drops off and and you hear the whole thing, but you don't need to see anything. And it's because it's just so well done. Mm-hmm. It's a great death scene and it's quite shocking as well. Uh, the cab guy goes to knock on the door and nobody answers. So, of course, he's pissed and storms off. And, and this is the moment when Billy watches him leave and then goes wild, like just starts throwing shit around the attic and, and and grunting and wailing and just like what do you think he was was he mad that the cab driver didn't come in so you could kill him i don't know no, just- i think his breakdown is because he's and this is something that i think is quite in line with the kind of mental breakdown you'd have with the someone who'd have this kind of psychosis somebody who is you know um murderous or has ex- exhibited uh tendencies towards you know, like molestation and so forth and so on. You know, I think he's breaking. I think that he hates himself for some of the things he does, but he's also obsessed with it. So this whole thing, how he associates associates it with Agnes and what he did, he can't seem to let it go. You know, he keeps bringing up Agnes. He keeps bringing her up in dialogue um, and reminding himself what he did. And when he does do something that he would have been, you know, acknowledging as being wrong or would have been scolded by his parents for, he breaks and he has this really violent reaction because he, I think he internally hates himself for it. He's rocking the body and the chair violently and everything. I think it's coming from the guilt and the self-hate he's feeling uh, towards what he's done. That's that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was like curious. I was like, was he mad because the guy didn't come in so he could kill him or or what? But that makes total sense. As, as many times as I've seen this film, and of course I love this film, I mean, that really, really does make sense. He's just having a breakdown because maybe he does feel like, oh shit, I, what did it do? But I mean, he's just consumed by this urge to kill and urge to relive the, the scenario that was Agnes, whatever you want to imagine that was. Uh, the search party does find the dead girl. There is a girl that screams and then poor Mr. 
Harrison comes and sees something. We don't see the body. And then the poor mother comes and, and we see her face and it's just full of anguish. So we know they found Janice's body in the park. Jess is coming home and the, the, the phone is ringing. So she comes right in the door and answers it. And then this is the, an, another phone call with basically the voice of a baby crying. And then him very like uh, childlike saying, help me, please help me stop. And then I know what you did, nasty Billy, Billy. And of course she hangs up and you know, it's, it's so creepy because she hangs up the phone and there's just, you hear the creaking upstairs. So you know, you know, he's up there, you know, he's up there and, uh, and the shadows you see, well, you, you see the feet actually coming down the steps as she's on the phone at this point. And it, it ends up being Peter, which shockingly enough. Yeah. This is after, yeah. After the call, she calls the police. And when she's on hold with the police, yeah, these footsteps come down the stairs and it's very, uh, I like it because it does make it seem like it's the killer you think it's going to be the fuck i mean the way they shoot this moment uh even even in knowing what the outcome is i still find it to be so chilling you just see this slow pursuit down the steps you see the shadows first so fucking creepy yeah so he throws his coat over the railing when she's on the phone with the police and scares the shit out of her she's like peter you scared the crap out of me why didn't you say something He's like, well, you scared me too. Yeah, I got cold waiting for you. And so he just came, he just went in their house and decided to go take a nap, apparently. So she's on the phone with the police trying to tell them about the obscene phone calls. And, you know, we cut to Nash is the one taking the call and he's being very dismissive about the phone calls. He's like, I'm sorry, ma'am. It's hectic here. We had a little girl murdered in the park. I don't know when I can get a man on it. But in the meantime, Mr. Harrison's overhearing this and, and hears the address that Jess gives him. So not right away, he knows that it's the sorority house call. I love the way this film sets up each kind of like uh development into the next uh, story arc or plot twist or like it, again, everything is so well thought out. Like the simplicity of, of Claire's dad, of course he'd be there. And the fact that he overhears this address and he is aware of it, um, and that's the reason the police become aware of what's going on. Like such a smart way to play the story. It's it's such like a little intricate detail, but it feels very thought out. Um, and, and another thing with, with this whole kind of evolution of Peter becoming a very prominent character at the timing in which he does become prominent, they were so smart to play in that piano moment earlier because we touched on it. But now that we're talking about the overall mental state of the killer and and the fact that you know when he is having this dialogue with jess over the phone uh, you know talking about you know please uh you know uh, uh, please help me or basically like this pleading voice which in my mind is him as a child asking you know somebody help me someone you know make me stop again a very common trait with serial killers especially ones that target you know, youths or, you know, women in scenarios like this, a lot of times, again, with the self-hate, they they want to be caught. You know, this is a, something that's a common trend that comes up, but they still can't find the, like, really find it within them to stop killing. So you're getting more of this from her through this individual conversation or this dialogue she's having with the killer, because she does start to respond to him, you know, and you're learning a lot while you're also learning that Peter is in his own way mentally unstable 
maybe not quite as unhinged, but dealing with some extreme emotional issues. It's very well placed. It's well planted within the story. So it gives you all the more reason to start suspecting this guy. Yes, because he tells her he is leaving the conservatory. He's tired of it. And they're going to get married. That's what he says. And we're going to get married. He just fucking tells oh, her. Oh, yeah. We're getting married. And I do like that. She's like, you know what, Peter? You remember that when we first met and we talked about these plans we had, like you told me you wanted to be this fabulous concert pianist. Well, I still have my plans that I want to do. And just because yours change doesn't mean you can expect me to ch- mine to change. And he's like, what What do you mean? You, you can still do everything you want, you know, w- when we get married. And then she has to. <laughs> He's putting her in this position where he, she just has to come out and say it, right? She's like, Peter, I don't want to marry you. Oh, my God. And the way they handle his dialogue, you know, he's not written in an exaggerated way, but he is so fucking detestable. He's so unlikable without going over the top. And it's it's just so well done. And the, the things he says to her, the way he says it, it's often in a way that feels like he's very controlling of her or expects certain things of her and she just won't take it. And so quickly he turns on her and there's two little things he says here that I think are really telltale signs of the kind of person he is. First of all, she's telling him about Claire and she's like, Claire's missing. We're worried. And he quickly goes, Oh, I'm sure she's fine. And then he selfishly turns the discussion right over to him. And the and and his decision to leave, you know, the, the school. So he's very selfish. And then, as soon as she makes it clear, she's like, "I will not be marrying you." He pauses and he says, "Okay, well then, what about the baby?" Because he knows now, if he can't get his way, in my mind, he's going to hold that over her. He's going to guilt trip her. Oh, and he does the way he talks about the baby here in in a few minutes. Yes, he's definitely trying to make it sound what she's doing sound as horrific as possible just with the choice of words that he is using and their connotation. Yes, you were 100% right. Uh, back at the police station, because we cut back to the police station, let, uh, Lieutenant Fuller confronts Nash about not taking the phone call from Jess seriously. He's like, hey, do you not see a connection? A little girl was found murdered in the park. Sorority girl's missing at the same sorority house. Her sisters are getting obscene phone calls. You not think something's, you know, <laughs> wrong in there. She's like, oh, well, I guess. So he's like, okay, I'm going to call. I'll call the house and and talk to the girl and tell her what we're going to do, that we're going to get a man on it. So when when Lieutenant Fuller takes the, you know, the report to make the phone call, he looks at the phone number. And I love the, I love this scene because that whoever that actor is, they must've told him something fucking hilarious because his laugh seems so genuine. He is fucking laughing his ass off. This other Lieutenant or, you know, his partner here is, a very minor character. He's in a couple moments. He's a little bit of dialogue, but this scene, I mean, it is hilarious just because this guy is just cackling because he sees the whole fellatio joke. So that fellatio joke comes very full circle and they even make it where, you know, they call the officer over and he's like, yeah, one of the girls that one of the girls gave it to me <laughs> and it just really hammers it home. And that the other Lieutenant is just fucking losing it. It's, it is of a lovable scene. There's some, a likability factor. To I it. like it. Cause it just shows you how naive Nash is. They are laughing not, at him. Oh, I know it's something dirty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, something, it's something dirty. Ain't it? <laughs> and then it hard cuts again to Peter smashing a Christmas tree bulb at the house saying, you selfish bitch. 
you're talking about killing our baby like you're having a wart removed. And then he's very like, Jess, you will not kill this baby. And she's like, Peter, I've made up my mind. I think you should leave. And he's like, Jess, you will. You better not do this. And she's like, leave now. And he's like, you're going to regret this. And he storms out right as the group comes back, including Lieutenant Fuller, who zeroes in on Peter right away. Ominous threats and then storming off in a huff. And you think that the lieutenant's not going to pick up on that? Oh, he picked up on it. But he brought the he brought the phone company dude who whose name is coincidentally Graham. <laughs> like, yeah, I like that little, uh, you know, addition. There. You know, I got to say this about this whole storyline that's about to come up because this whole phone line bit comes into play and it's a pretty big arc here for a second. And this is another thing that technically should feel very dated because it just, you know, we've technologies evolved beyond this. But somehow, even though I don't live in this world and I know nothing of what's really going on with anything that's to come from this character of Graham. It's so well played and it's done with such intensity and this whole thing is so tense that I fucking, I don't care. I love it. I don't even know what the fuck his job is. I know he's identifying where the the call's coming from. I don't know what any of the shit is that he's doing, but it's so fucking intense and he's running around and shit as we'll come to find out. I like the addition of this character. It adds just one more layer of tension to everything else going on. Yeah, he is. He's tapping their phone so that, yeah, when it rings, he can, he'll be able to... If the if she keeps him on the phone long enough, she, he'll be able to identify where the call's coming from by by the phone company room. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It, it was the days before just a name would pop up on a screen for caller ID. But yeah, it's great. Phil Fuller, Lieutenant Fuller, and Jess and Phil go up and check out Claire's room. Uh, Fuller's just asking various questions about you know when the last time Claire was seen how much she had to drink. I do like this little moment where he tries to catch Jess in a lie because Jess says um, that she was the last one to see her. And it was like 10 o'clock the night before. And then he casually, when he's re- he says something. So he's like, oh, and so when you saw her at 10 o'clock this morning and Jess is, immediately says, no, it was last night. So I thought very, she's very smart because he was trying to trip her up and she caught him. Yeah. And he really quickly, I think, realizes that Jess is not a character uh, you know, that he needs to really interrogate because she becomes a, ma- a vital playing factor in the overall uh, situation as it unfolds. If anything, they put a lot of trust in Jess. So back downstairs, when they go back downstairs, Graham tells them that they have to keep the guy on the line as long as possible. Uh, and this is when Roger Graham says, are there any other lines in the house? And Jess's response is, well, yeah, Mrs. Mack has one in her room. And immediately Fuller cuts her off and said, yeah, but it's a different number. And there hasn't gotten any calls on it. And then Fuller shows them that they also have an officer that's going to be stationed outside the house to watch them. This is something that is touched on only a couple of times. The presence of this car is is made obvious a couple of times. You never even really meet the officer in the vehicle, but oh, what a payoff to come from it. I mean, this is one of the first times you've had this trope that comes into play here too. Oh, it is. It is. So after Fuller leaves, you get Phil breaking down, crying, saying that she know. I know Claire is dead. I can just feel it. Oh, but a much needed moment for Phil, who is about to step up and be a, bit, a pretty big character here. Phil hasn't got to do much, you know, and she has this breakdown and she's like, I'm so sorry. I've been, I've had a cold and I've been taking this medicine and it's just making me drowsy. I just, I just need to go to bed. So she goes up to bed. Graham is at the phone company, back at the phone company, getting um, ready to 
be able to trace the calls. He calls Sheriff or he calls Fuller back. He's like, hey, the phone is going to ring to your desk as well. So when she gets phone calls, you'll get them too. And then we get Billy in the attic pushing dead Claire in a rocking chair with a doll. He's grunting and creepily crying. And he just makes this like final grunt where he's like, and Jess is downstairs in the living room by herself. Lots of creaks and shadows. And it's just creepy. This is what I was talking about. This is when it really feels like you feel like she's isolated. So claustrophobic. Um, The atmosphere, the tension is off the charts. Uh, Because we do see now the killer sneaking out of the attic. He comes down the attic. He goes into Barb's room, opens the door, goes into Barb's room. Jess is still downstairs. And we hear all of a sudden Barb start hyperventilating, like gasping for breath. And Jess runs up to her and she's having an asthma attack. And Jess comforts her, gives her her inhaler. And Barb's like, oh, I must have had a nightmare. I had a dream a stranger was coming in my room. Oh my God. That line is so creepy to me because she's drunk. She's out of it. She probably totally thinks it was just a dream. But you, again, as a viewer, you know that in fact, what she saw was very real. It's so creepy. Yeah, it really is. So Jess stays with her till she falls back asleep. And as she's going downstairs, carolers come to the front door. So Jess goes back downstairs to watch the carolers and they're singing, you know, beautiful Christmas tunes when Barb's door opens again. I just love the framing of this death scene, that fucking crystal unicorn at the forefront of the frame. Every time the door opens and you just see a figure in the doorway and that's crystal unicorn is prominently in the front of the frame. Uh, Oh my God. The light from the doorway uh, coming through it. So it's very obvious. You get the full shape and there's several of them, but that unicorn is by far the most prominent. This makes me, this definitely made me think twice about putting anything sharp on my bed. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so simultaneously as the kids are caroling, the killer goes into Barb's room and he picks up the crystal unicorn and you hear him say, Agnes, it's me, Billy. It's all right, Agnes. It's all right. Don't you tell what we did, Agnes. And he raises that fucking unicorn above him. And you see, we do see a glimpse, like it's a little sliver of his eye and his hair. And you can see he's wearing like a green sweater, but you don't see anything else. And right at this moment, Barb wakes up. He begins stabbing the shit out of her with this crystal unicorn's horn. I love this death scene. It's in slow motion. He grunts. It's like every time he's stabbing her, he's making that grunt. Her hands, her bloody hands are flailing. She's, I mean, it's, and it's intercut with those kids singing this beautiful Christmas tune. I don't know why this death scene does not get more recognition because it is so well done. It's another example of a sequence that I think in most scenarios, I would say I would want to see more. Like in the example of like, I would love to have seen more of like the penetration or at least like the, you know, her face. Um, But because of the way they incorporate the the carolers into the scene, their audio kind of swells up over it. The song becomes very prominent. It's haunting. It's these beautiful, I mean, these kids, these kids are, they they must be in like a fucking local competition or something caroling. Because the harmonies are fucking tight. These kids have, this is not their first rodeo singing this arrangement of Oh, come all you faithful. <laughs> I mean, it's all over the place in the best possible way, but it's a very intricate arrangement to be honest of the song. And that layered over top what's going on. You do get one shot of Barb starting to wake up and realizing 
what's about to happen, but she can't, you know, she is unable to defend herself in time. And because it chops back and forth between her hand, knock it over the glass statues and the thrusting of the actual um, unicorn now all covered in red as the lights coming through it. It's such an artsy kill. I don't give a fuck. I don't see anything because it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful scene. It really is. It's a beautiful. You're, that's a good. That's a great word for it. artsy and beautiful. It was again ahead of its time, a death scene ahead of its time. Older lady comes to get the killer Carol, or she's like Gertrude, get those kids in the car now. And she tells Jess the little girl was murdered in the park, and Jess is like, Yeah, no, I heard. And the phone starts ringing. And the old lady's like, aren't you, you going to get your phone? So and Jess is like, oh, yeah, yeah. So she runs in. She answers it. Of course, it's Billy crying. No, Billy. No, Billy. And she's trying to, you know, she can't, she's not really saying much, but she's hoping he stays on the phone. And and she does like, she's like, why are you doing this? And you hear the voice say, just like having a wart removed. Which is exactly what Peter said to her earlier. When he's like, you're talking about killing our baby like you're having a wart removed. And she's like, oh, my God. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, oh, my God. So let's let's give another, you know, check in Peter as the red herring column. But it is so fucking creepy. It's so, ugh, you know. And Fuller calls her back to tell her that, he, that she didn't keep him on the phone long enough. And at the same time, there's this little moment in the police station where this officer comes in who's been shot in the ass by this angry old man. <laughs> because the man, the cop trespassed on his property. I don't give a damn. I'll do it again. Oh my god! Like uh, nowadays, that would not <laughs> at all. Like, yeah. like that man. He has a bloody ass. A, this poor cop has a bloody ass. <laughs> yeah. I I like that. Jess like clearly suspects. You can tell that she's starting to suspect that it's Peter. Um, because when she hears the line, she has an audible reaction, and even the lo- the lieutenant picks up on it. Like he's fucking on it. The lieutenant is is asking all the right questions. He's making the right assumptions, and he even asks her when he's talking to her. Um, you know, you sounded like you 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 recognize something or realize something, and what was that about? And she kind of blows it off a little bit. Yeah, she lies, and she's like, "Oh, it was just getting to me." Yeah, but but we know she kind of suspects Peter because the next scene is Phil is back up because Phil's like I can't sleep. What is all this racket in his house? And Jess is like, Phil, he repeated word for word what Peter said to me earlier. And and Phil is like, I don't think it can be Peter. You know, I don't really like Peter much, but I don't think it's cap- capable of this. And she's like, Phil, I'm really starting to get scared. Just then the phone rings again, and now it's Peter crying. And telling her, Jess, please don't kill the baby. Please don't kill the baby, Jess. I want the baby. And Fuller, of course, his nosy ass is listening in and hears this. And Jess is like, Peter, get a hold of yourself. Please don't kill the baby. She, you can tell that she's like trying to be like, Peter, chill the fuck out. Like she's well aware and he's no idea what's going on. Um, this, this whole dialogue he has where he's kind of having this breakdown, again, really well played because his emotional um, re- reaction right now over the phone is very much kind of in the same energy of what you were just hearing from Billy over the phone. It, it, it's, it's capturing that same kind of manic, emotional, upset, distraught energy. So you as the viewer and listener hearing this, you're like, oh my God, like it, it sounds like it's it's kind of just the same person just calling right back and in the middle of the same kind of emotional breakdown. Yeah, it's very I mean, 
Yes. I mean, this film is just hitting the right notes. It knows what it's doing. This film knows what it's doing. It's every every frame, every scene transition is very intentional because, yeah, it's just heightened the suspense the suspicion of Peter, because you were right. The, the two phone calls back to back sound very similar. Um, Fuller calls her back and um, is like, what was that all about? And this is when she's like, oh, you know, he's just, he's an artist. He's very high strung. And he's like, yeah, but that's a really odd way to say about you having an abortion. Don't kill the baby. They're sitting on the couch, Phil and, and, and Jess are sitting on the couch and behind them, you see a shadow of a person like cross the wall. Ugh. It's so creepy. And then Fuller asks, was Peter with you during any of the phone calls tonight? And she does remember. Yes, he was because he was there when she got that one call right before she called the police, he was upstairs. Um, so she's like, yes, it couldn't have been Peter. It couldn't have been Peter. And he's like, well, I still think Peter needs some help. So where can I find him? Yeah, the the, the, the lieutenant is already kind of seeing through all of this. I mean, like, lo and behold, it's actually, I'm, we're pretty well aware it's not Peter. But for the lieutenant, it's all putting the pieces together where his assumptions and his reasoning wanting to find Peter makes a lot of fucking sense. So it's a really good distraction tool right now to get the lieutenant kind of off doing his own thing. So everything that's about to transpire regarding Jess leaves her very much alone uh, without direct assistance. So Phil is like, I I knew it couldn't be Peter. And she goes into the kitchen to get some aspirin and they are interrupted by these like bumbling search party guys who, you know, scare Phil because they see her in the window and then, you know, they knock on the door. So Phil and Barb answer the door and there's this really lighthearted moment before the film gets really fucking dark where these bumbling guys are like, Oh, we're going to see more of us around, blah, blah, blah. It's just kind of like a good comic relief. It does make Jess realize that none of the doors or windows of the house are locked. So, Oh my God, that's so creepy. And Phil has that line where she says, I'd rather face the killer, which in hindsight is a bad call on her behalf. To oh, say that. it's a bad call because what happens? Well, I mean, <sighs> with pretty fucking soon, she fucking faces the killer. Here. The very next scene. Yeah. She goes up to, when she's upstairs, shutting the upstairs, locking the windows upstairs. She hears a knock on Barb's door. So she goes to Barb's bedroom and opens the door and steps in the room and turns. And all of a sudden the door slams violently shut. I will say this. If there were, I mean, because you know, I have I have very little um, negative to say about this film at all. So I'm going to try to like find something. Uh, if there's one thing I wish I had more of, it would be not just the kill itself, but just the moment. It's very quick. It's almost fleeting. You see Phil. She's like she's like hanging something up. She hears the noise. She looks over. She walks to the door. She walks in. She sees something. Her face looks scared. The door slams. And I get what they're doing with it. But this now coming up on like the final stretch of the movie and Phil being kind of the last girl standing other than Jess would have loved to have just seen what they could have done along the lines of something that was just as uh, unique or uh, just artistic as like, say, what they did with the Barb kill, you know, the fact that they chose to do nothing at all and just cut away 
without showing what happens in general, does feel like a little bit pinch of a letdown, nowhere to the size or magnitude of like some of the kills in Friday the 13th, like we discussed. But I I just know they could have done something here because every other kill in this movie is fucking magnificent. And I'm shocked that they chose to leave this one is just so like open-ended. Yeah, it is a little disappointing, but I guess the payoff that we get here in a few minutes is sort of worth it. But, you know... Barb, it makes sense that Barb kind of got the most theatrical death scene because she's the most theatrical character in the film. Phil was always just kind of meek, laid back, didn't really have a lot to do. Um, So it kind of makes sense that her death scene is kind of eh. Right after this, uh, Jess gets another call. And this one is basically the killer calling Jess, you pig, you bitch pig screaming, wailing. In the meantime, Lieutenant Fuller has made his way to the conservatory and found the smashed piano. And obviously that's a big red flag to him. And as he's like observing it, his deputy runs and is like, uh, Lieutenant, there's another call come out. So they go out to his car and you can hear the call. It's just a lot of frantic wailing, crying. Where's Agnes? What you, what your mother and I must know is, and this is where you hear a line. It's like, where's the knife? Where's the knife, Billy? And so uh, again, lots of inferences you can make about the story, but the the whole point is he he stays on the phone long enough for Graham to trace the call. And then the call ends with, oh, it's I hate this voice. It's like, see, mommy, baby's okay. Baby's okay, mommy. No, and then you you are establishing this idea, and it's mentioned later in the film towards the end that 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 the killer is making a phone call after every kill. After every time he kills somebody, he's making this phone call. And again, it, it kind of plays into what you're maybe saying about like him being like him hating himself and after he's doing it, and it has to be an outlet for him to get the emotion out is making these phone calls because every time he kills somebody, he makes a phone call. It's like a confession almost in a way. It uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so Nash radios Fuller to tell him, hey, you know, we were able to trace the calls. The calls are coming from 6 Belmont Street. And Fuller's like, Nash, you fucking idiot. That's where the calls are going to. And Nash simply says, that's where they're coming from too, sir. And you see this flash of realization on his face. He's like, oh, shit. This moment, m- moving forward, tension is, I mean, you could cut it with a knife. It is so fucking thick with tension. Um, the Every moment that kind of unfolds from here is like edge of your seat. Um, And it's really impressive what they managed to do in this building, like just like heart pounding tension, because now people are starting to realize that someone's in the house. And, you know, now Billy's going to have to actually move like he's going to have to act upon it um, or, or fear of being discovered. Nash immediately radios Jennings, who is the officer that is stationed outside the ho- the the house, the sortie house, and he's not answering. So we get this nice transition into Nash's police car, and the camera slowly zooming in on it on the car, and we see that Nash's throat has been slit. So what that establishes, uh, Roger, is that Billy does leave the house to kill people, which again makes me think that he killed Janice even more. He does leave the house to kill people. Billy was smart enough to realize this cop was out there and this cop was going to be an obstacle for him. So he goes out and he kills him, which again is chilling that this character who seems so unhinged and so sporadic 
actually is not and, and has the forethought of going out and killing a cop that he knows is going to be an issue. Well, and it also makes me feel like that guy's been dead for a hot minute. And when she got a couple of those calls earlier- Yes, it's after he it's killed after him. after he yep. killed him, which makes it all make sense even more. And he, that guy's just been dead in that car for a couple hours now. Yeah. So Fuller calls Nash back and is like, Nash, you need to, here's what you need to do. You need to call, you need to call that girl and tell her to leave the house. Don't tell her that the calls are coming from the house. Just tell her to leave. Don't ask any questions and just go. And then he's like, and Nash, if you fuck this up, I'll kill you. And what's Nash do? God bless Nash's heart. I love Nash. He's an endearing guy. He's just a goofball who, you know, bless, he's just a simpleton. He calls her and he's like, Mrs. Bradford, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. Don't question anything. Just put the phone down and walk out the front door. And she's like, well, why? And he's like, no, 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 no questions. Put the phone down, walk out the front door. And she's like, okay, I'll go get Barb. And Phil's like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. And she's like, well, why? And he's like, the calls are coming from the house. Terrifying. If I was just on the phone... I would react exactly the way Olivia fucking Hussey reacts in this goddamn scene. And her fear here is just palpable. It is truly one of the scariest, genuinely scariest movies I think ever captured in horror. The moment of him just disclosing to her, they're in the, the calls are coming from the house. This person is in the house. You do not even have time to tell anybody. You need to get out right now. And it just, it is such a heart poundingly terrifying moment. I, I really, really adore this whole sequence and everything that comes from it, too. I mean, this whole finale at this point. If I had one thing to say, again, I'm looking for critiques because I don't want to be that person that only I can do is praise something. But it would honestly be just that I wish I would have had 10 more minutes of this. This terror because it's so fucking good. Yeah, it goes it, it goes quite quickly from here. So she puts down the phone and he's screaming for Miss Bradford. Don't go upstairs, Miss Bradford. And she's not listening. And then the score kicks in and it just becomes very tense. And she goes to the front door and is getting ready to leave. And this is when she's like, Phil, Bob, answer me. Phil, Phil, Bob, please answer me. My favorite, my favorite part in the movie. I mean, she screams it pretty, pretty, pretty loudly. I mean, it's, oh my god, her performance here is f- fucking phenomenal. Yeah, and she's like, oh, 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 and she notices the fireplace poker. So she thinks that's going to protect her. So she goes to grab the fireplace poker and slowly ascends the stairs. Girl, I know, like, listen, I know. No, but but hey, I'm not. I'm I'm, I'm going to I'm going to criticize it, and then I'm going to say something else. Girl, I know you love your sisters, but for the love of God, don't go up there. But at the same time, with how they have built her character, thus it far, it makes sense. It she. I think she is the kind of person who would go back for people. I genuinely believe that. It doesn't seem, in my opinion, like a like a uh, like a, a bad choice. I mean, yeah, it's a, technically it's a bad choice, but I'm not looking at her as a character who's like making the dumb call. She is consciously 
making the decision to go back and and find her friends. There's purpose and reasoning behind it. Oh yeah. Yeah, and it does make sense with her character so far. Her character is very like independent, is very is going to do what she thinks is right for herself. And at this moment she thinks that getting Phil and Barb out of that house knowing that there's someone in there is the right thing to do. So it's a very slow painstaking ascend to Barb's room and when she she gets to Barb's room. She tries to open the door and it, it won't open right away. So she has to like throw her weight against it. And it, but it finally opens and she falls onto the floor and we get the shot of Barb and Phil bloodied and dead on her bed. Whew. And then one of the, if not the creepiest shot in horror film history, in my opinion, is when you hear killer's voice, Agnes, it's me, Billy. And the camera quickly pans to the corner, the crack in the door, and you see that crazed eye staring at her. Don't you tell what we did, Agnes. That's fucking terrifying. That's the the tattoo I have on my leg is the eye through the door. Well, And again, you hear him reference one of these characters as Agnes. And it, without knowing anything about this guy, you learn so much about him. And hearing him reference her as Agnes... A character whom he has this entire time been voicing that he's injured or harmed or done something really horrible to, you realize that he is referencing her in that way because he's about to do the exact same fucking thing. And it makes your skin crawl. That eye, the the shot of that eye, every little detail in that eye, you see all of it. Every hair in his eyebrow. And it's just that slit of light. And that's all you get. It's horrifying. It's terrifying. It is single one of the single most terrifying shots in horror movie history, if not the most terrifying shot in horror film history, is that eye, crazed eye through the doorway. Again, that's what I have my Black Christmas tattoo of. That's how fucking insane this scene affected me. But she acts quick. She pushes the door against him and takes off running down the stairs, ca- causing him to just go fucking ball- ballistic. He's like, and she goes, she tries to open the front door and it won't open. So she makes a beeline to run. And then there's that, sh- that jump scare, that shock scare when he reaches and grabs her fucking hair. Oh my I God. Know. Oh my God. Yanks her violently grabs her hair and pulls her and yanks her. And she falls to the fucking floor. Blood curdling scream coming out of her mouth. Oh, it's so good. And she gets into the basement and is able to lock the basement door. And he is fucking going, man. He's pounding, rah, pounding on the door for a few seconds. And then all of a sudden he quits. And you literally hear the dude like walk out of the house and shut the front door. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing that I really want to point out is for the most part, when you get classic iconic killers, so often they're mute. So often you don't hear, you don't hear these things coming out of them. Because they always want to play up the the silent aspect, the stalking, you know, the Jason, the the Michaels. This killer, one of the reasons he's so terrifying is because he is unpredictable and he's emotional and he's very verbal and he has big reactions. So when he's angry, yeah, you're right, he's just screaming. And you never see his face because of some very strategic and very well-executed camera work. You, you always see it like just as his hand's coming out, it'll whip away. It's following her. You'll see his legs coming up behind her through the stairs. But it's always the hand or the foot. You never see the face. It's so well done. 
I mean, this whole sequence was very, very, very intentionally uh, shot with the way it's cut and edited that you avoid it. And it's just so well done. Um, but they still manage to have these really terrifying, brutal moments, like you said, with the hair grab. Oh, my God. That's one of my fucking favorite moments in the film. It's so scary. So when she finally is able to you know, lock herself in the basement and she's right up against the door and he's pounding on it and you hear this really drastic transition from this big emotional breakdown to silent and you hear him walk away and leave you know leave the room you hear the door shut you know something is motivating it there's a reason and it plays factor it does play a factor into what's about to happen there's a reason he chooses to stop what he's doing and walk away and it's because there's someone else who is it it's peter 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 is showing up because she goes down into the basement and we hear Peter calling her name. And there's this kind of like long drawn out moment where he's like scraping the ice off the, the basement window. And then she recognizes it's Peter and uh, he can't get in the house, but he apparently has heard the ruckus because he very just casually busts the, the basement window so that he can go jump in and get down there with her. And he's like, Jess, what are you doing? And he's very being very kind. He's like, I heard some screaming. What's going on? Why are you down here? And as he approaches her, you know, she is just like frozen in fear and she's like backing away from him. He's like, Jess, Jess, come here, come here. And then it just cuts to the police officers pulling up in front of her house and Lieutenant Fuller charges in, busts through the basement door, goes downstairs and we get the revelation of Jess with Peter lying in her lap, bloodied and dead. She's fully passed out. I, I love this whole little bit, though, of, of him kind of pursuing her around the house. Because at first, you get this transition. You see or you, you hear the killer leave the room. You hear the door shut. And then the first thing you see of anything is you, you're following just throughout the basement as she's peering out the windows. So you see a pair of legs walk by, the shadow, a silhouette of the legs, because the glass is frosted. So you don't see details. But what you think you're seeing as the viewer, is is just a continuation of the killer now walking around the house. So it's not until you really hear the voice, because at first it's very muffled. So you even that, you think it's the killer kind of doing more of his bantering. But then when you start to listen, it's clearly Peter. And so when he does clear the ice off the glass, you finally know, oh, this is Peter. But you, as the viewer, start to automatically suspect, of course it's Peter. The killer has to be Peter. And she thinks it too, because all signs point to it being Peter. There's so many things the killer said. There's so many little things that have come up. It just makes sense. So he makes this bold choice where he breaks in the glass, which makes him just look like that much more of a fucking wacko, you know, busting through the glass and climbing in. And you've got her hiding in the shadows. And it's a very, very tense moment, but it's fairly brief. And for this great moment you just had, literally just his entire journey with the killer. She realizes the killer's there. She has a big moment where she reacts. She responds. She runs in the basement and then she hides. And now Peter comes and finds her. And yes, she inevitably kills him. Jess's interactions with the killer only consist of a couple moments, like brief moments. And it's done. He attacks her once. He really only attacks her once, gets her in the basement, and then he leaves. Um, and so it does make for a situation where she is the final girl has a great moment with that whole stairwell sequence, but she doesn't really get to do a whole lot. She kills Peter, but you know, obviously she kills the wrong person. It's great reveal. 
big dramatic moment with her passed out there, you know, with her arm hanging up and she looks up and it dissolves into the next moment. But overall, just does not get a ton to do in the sense of, you know, her big self-defense moment. It's pretty fleeting. No, I agree. I think if I had one, if I had one complaint about the film, or not even a complaint, but something I wish they would have done. You're right. I wish the chase scene between Billy and Jess would have been a lot longer because it is very abrupt. I mean, she really, the chase scene consists of her running down the stairs. That's it. Once she gets in the basement, the chase scene ends. Um, and then you get that the moment with Peter, but it would have been great for them to maybe have a, a little bit more for her to do it in terms of confrontation with the killer. Although I understand why they didn't do it because like the least amount of time they spend with the killer, the better, you know what I mean? Because we don't want, he's supposed to be mysterious. He's supposed to be. She never gets a, a clear view of him. Yeah, exactly. But what ends up happening is, you know, the film cuts to Jess being upstairs in bed. You know, the, the police have found, um, you know, a couple of the bodies and the house is swarmed with police until they slowly start to leave. You know, one of the officers says he'll stay with, with Jess, but then Mr. Uh, Harrison passes out and they have to take him. So what ends up happening is basically Jess is kind of abandoned in this house. Uh, she's left up there by herself and these have to be like some of the most incompetent cops and because they they didn't search the entire house obviously but then they leave this woman who was just attacked by you know a killer even though they think it's peter still they just leave her up there but i like the commotion of this moment it's all one shot for the most part you know, you should see her laying on the bed. All of this shit happens. The the reporters are downstairs. So the lieutenant goes down there to get them to clear out of the house. Um, and then obviously the father passes out. So then two of the guys have to help escort him out because he's in shock because he knows his daughter is fucking dead at this point. And so it makes for a moment that makes sense why they clear out for a second. And it's just long enough for that great pan over from the empty bedroom down the hall, this very long pan to reveal the attic, the, the crawl space. And you hear him up there talking to himself, Agnes. And then all of a sudden when she's by herself, the attic door opens, you hear him, you see the shadow of him climbing down. And then we cut to just the exterior of the house, right? And there's this moment where it's just quiet for a minute and the camera's kind of slowly pulling away from the house. And all of a sudden, you hear the ominous phone ringing. And as the phone rings, the credits start. Two things about this ending moment that make it extra impactful for me. A, that cop's still outside. So she is just, she is just you know, a mere feet away from safety but at the same time in my gut i really feel like just is fucking doomed also lest we forget that f- phenomenal final shot one last time of claire claire's face in the in the window um with mrs mack hanging behind her they're still up there and from that face it pulls back to reveal the house and that face if you look is visible from outside that whole time 
She's just been sitting up there. If you really look and you squint, you can see that face. But no one has paid attention to it because now everyone thinks everything's okay. Or at least in regards to the killer's been caught. Sure, the body's not been found, but they're not worried about that right now because the killer, in their mind, the killer's been caught. So they're getting all their things in order and they're not even paying attention to the fact that that, that, the, the, that the killer is still in the fucking house. What a fucking finale well yeah and it just yeah you would think that they would still search the house even if they think that peter was the killer because claire still hasn't been found right but yeah and yeah it's such a phenomenal last shot of of mrs uh, max hanging in the attic with claire still up there because they're still up there and that was my that was, i mentioned that early in the podcast they, how long were they up there who knows but the phone call the phone ringing at the end of the film is very ominous to me because we just said that it seems like the killer makes a phone call after every death and as he coming down the stairs, you do hear him say, Agnes, it's me, Billy. So the assumption or the inference that we have to make is that he is going into the room where Jess is and kills her. And after he kills her, he goes and makes the phone call, not knowing that nobody's going to answer it. God, I want her to survive so fucking bad, though. I know, I know. But I honestly, the way the movie's structured and everything that happens, I don't think Jess made it, unfortunately. I think he killed her and that last phone call was him doing his call after he killed her to let the emotion and the, and everything out. It is such a ambiguous ending. I mean, you can look at it both ways. There was never a sequel to the film, obviously. Um, and you can really look at it both ways. I think what's one of the things that maybe frustrates some viewers is there is no clear answer about what happened and who Billy is and what happens to Jess. But then again, I think that's part of the brilliance of the film, right? Uh, oh yeah is the ambiguity of the killer like this is fucking creepy like people say oh halloween's so creepy because and you know we don't know anything about michael myers he's just stalking uh sorry you know a lot more about michael myers than you do about this billy character this is the definition of a killer that is just killing and we know nothing about him why he's targeting victims yes we know the phone calls whatever but i'm saying like this is the, it's so fucking creepy to know someone can just latch on to you get into your house and start terrorizing you and you have no idea that they're there uh, can you imagine being that fucking lieutenant when after all is said and done they come back and find her fucking dead ass body uh, and they're like oh my are you fucking kidding me like yeah there's a lot of people whose jobs are gonna be on the line after this girl's this girl's found dead uh because i think you're right i hate to say it but i think you're right i think that jess unfortunately does not make it through the night and that what we're hearing is the imp what's implied by that phone ringing is what we all know that Jess has been killed. So what a what a fucking downer of an ending for a holiday film for a Christmas film. And you know it's 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 Black Christmas. Uh, and again, I will maintain it's my favorite horror film of all time. I think it does so many things right. It's a masterpiece of suspense. I know, you know, if I have to acknowledge what I've heard from people that dislike the film, it's the pacing. Some people think the pacing is a little too slow. Oh, come on. I know. It's intentional. It is intentional. I mean, that's what the whole, my whole point is. I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is a film that cares about its characters and wants to spend time with the characters. And I appreciate that. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know what most it's, it's, this film has impacted me in a way that no other film has. And that's saying a lot. It's saying a lot. And I could praise this film from here until Christmas time, but I'm just going to leave it at, you know, the influence that this film has had on the horror genre as a whole is so, so 
underappreciated um, and un- unrecognized, I think. And it, it's a shame. It's a shame because, again, this film, so many other films that came after it, obviously borrowed elements from this film and it just never gets the recognition it deserves. But I think a lot of, I think the people that love this film know that and realize what a masterpiece this film is. Uh, And I think we're definitely lending our voices to a growing chorus of voices that uh, are um, very, very adamant about the fact that this is a masterpiece horror film. I mean, this is a a top tier, one of the most influential pieces of horror cinema. And it has sadly gone, I don't want to say unrecognized, because there's a fact there's a reason there's two remakes of this goddamn movie. I mean, like, you know, and and uh, it, it truly is the blueprint. It is the blueprint for what so many other films have tried to recapture. So um I have so much respect for this film. Uh, I, you know, I have wanted to be in horror movie scenes that are similar to this film. The reason I look to act is because of of the kind of dramatic moments the scene the scenes pull off in this movie. Uh, the the suspense is constant over the course of this movie, and and an actor would be lucky to be in a movie this this well handled and well executed. So, um, it's truly a phenomenal movie, and I really hope that the next generations to come continue to learn about it more and more. Yeah. I think as the years go on, I think it'll continue to get the, the recognition and praise because it does seem like every year this film does get a little bit more prominent attention focused on it. Um, and which is great to see, but you know, as, as so many new holiday horror themed films come out, there is also that worry that this one is going to somehow get overshadowed, but I I just don't see it happening because I don't see that there is ever going to be a Christmas themed horror film that tops this one. I agree. It just, it's everything. And I'm talking about not only from a story aspect or I'm talking about from a technical aspect. I think you hit the nail on the head. This film technically cinematography wise, editing wise was also highly ahead of its time and highly influential. Yeah, absolutely. So, And folks, that is, that is black Christmas. If you, you know, if you're one of the people that may not appreciate this film or or like this film, we're not going to, we're not going to come at you, but we like kind of want to know why, you know, if you want to comment on that, or if you're a huge fan of the film and you love it, let us know your thoughts on our episode and some of our interpretations. And again, go to iTunes, hit that five star rating and show us some, some Christmas love there. But um, yeah, as we kind of round out December, Roger, uh, are we going to reveal what our next pick is? So I opted to select a film that wasn't Christmas based in any way. I mean, I love Christmas, but how are you going to top Black Christmas? I feel like that is the star on top of our tree this month. So instead, I decided to go a completely different angle. And, you know, the the new Avatar movie the shape of fucking water or whatever it is, the sound of water, the, the, the touch, the feel of water. The new Avatar film is about to come out. And that's had me thinking about one James Cameron a lot lately because I can't avoid him. It's everywhere I look. Avatar, every fucking where I look. But in that being said, I did think, you know, if there's ever a time we're going to cover this film, it's going to be now. Because this is the film that really got James Cameron 
his feature film de- debut. I mean, this is what got him, I won't say on the map, because this movie is not well received, <laughs> but it got him, at least got eyes on him, and it got him an opportunity to show what he can do. And so, in honor of the new Avatar film, the the the, the sound of water, or whatever it may be, um, I decided, you know what, let's go ahead and just fucking do it. Let's cover Piranha 2, the spawning. <laughs> Uh, we're jumping right to Piranha 2. <laughs> Piranha 2. Oh. You're not, we're just jumping right. It's the one where they have wings and they come out of sinks and shit. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Let's go from one extreme to the whole fucking polar opposite uh, other. I had no idea you were going to say that. When you started to say James Cameron, I was like, oh, please don't make it. Uh, it's, and it's Avatar The Way of Water, just to be clear. The Way of Water. I wouldn't fucking know because I could give two shits. I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure it'll be lovely. I'm sure it'll be full of CGI creatures with with a valley of disbelief that i can't comprehend but um but yeah you know i want to see james cameron when he had nothing but a couple hundred thousand dollars and some fish with wings to play with (laughs) because i'm down why not why not i've never seen it and i had no oh my god i've never seen it and i had no idea james cameron directed it it's his directorial debut i don't know i just looked it up i'm like you're lying it is he did direct it It i thought you were gonna say aliens i was like i really don't no 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 no. i mean i love aliens but i don't feel like that's I don't feel like talking no, about it. No, okay. like, I want I want fucking Piranha, Piranha 2. Piranha 2, folks. There you go. You better tune <laughs> in. Piranha 2, it shall be. Piranha 2 on Christmas morning. Nothing better. Oh, my God. Merry Christmas to you fuckers, uh, truly. What better way to take out 2022 than Piranha 2, the spawning? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, folks, tune in for Piranha 2. And again, guys, thank you so much for listening. Again, share the podcast if you're enjoying us. Um yeah help us out but other than that leave some love leave under the Christmas some love tree. share our episodes on social media it would mean the world to us but oh, we will uh, be back and uh check out our patreon we will be back for apparently piranha 2 the spawning <laughs> get the fuck ready yay i'm excited <laughs> you should be you all should be too all right merry christmas you guys we'll be catching up with you soon good night good night